and we backed them off, but that didn't mean they went away. It just meant they kind of went back to the drawing board and it resurfaced as Common Core. Welcome back to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. You're listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber an extension and behind the scenes of our filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features, where we're currently working on a new documentary project called The Mind Polluters. I'm your host, Amber Archer. You can learn more about our filmmaking ministry and the movies we are making by visiting fearlessfeatures.org. It's also a great place for you to make that one-time or monthly donation to help bring these timely films to the people, as we are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on donations to make the movies and this podcast possible. You become a force multiplier for truth when you partner with us through our nonprofit, Fearless Features. Today, I have special guest Peg Luxick joining me, as I promised from last week's episode, as a follow-up to her 1992 town hall presentation and how she's seen education shift over the last few decades from traditional education to outcome-based education. If you missed her presentation, you can find it at fearlessfeatures.org forward slash podcast. So without further ado, here's my follow-up conversation with Peg Luxick. I just want you to tell people about yourself and how long you have been fighting this battle in education. Okay. Um, actually, the most important things about me is that I've been married for 42 years and my husband and I have six children and five grandchildren with one more on the way. So I uh, will have six by Christmas, which is just Amazing. I should have been a grandmother first. It was well, congratulations. So, uh, so that's the most important thing mm-hmm. that I think sometimes we tend to lose that fact. And it's, yeah. it's important to remember that I actually first got involved in the pro-life movement and created an alternative to abortion project that uh, was named a national point of light. And we, um, We worked with single moms. We provided free daycare if they went back to school and we checked attendance and they had to maintain passing grades. And and so it the program actually worked. It was one of the models used for the welfare reform in 1994. So um, that's where I got involved. And then from there, you know, once people know you're involved, it sort of snowballs. And so folks came to me in the late 80s with what was a sex ed curriculum that Pennsylvania Department of Education had mailed out. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and it taught intercourse in kindergarten with pictures. And it taught the senior high book was called I Deserve Love. And it was affirmations that the children had to write over and over and over again. And one of them said it was okay to make love with their parents. I didn't agree with that. So um, we put together an organization. There were two of us. And and when we did our first press conference and the media said, well, how big are you? And we said, under a thousand. Two is under a thousand. I did not (laughs) absolutely tell the truth. Uh, But the Department of Education first said that the curriculum didn't exist. And so I traveled the five big cities in Pennsylvania and said, I'm not holding this you're not seeing it. We're having a group hallucination because the department says this, this doesn't exist. So it, in the end, uh, the curriculum was recalled and destroyed. We found out that they used money from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to pay for it, which was not legal. And so a bunch of people in the Department of Education, including the secretary, were allowed to resign. So that was kind of where I got started. That was followed in 1990. I ran for governor in Pennsylvania. Um, We had just passed the Abortion Control Act in the state, and nobody wanted to run against Bob Casey. He was the sitting Democrat. He's very popular. I actually knew Bob. I knew him pretty well. 
But the Republicans, the head of the National Abortion Rights Action League and the head of the NOW came to Pennsylvania, declared the state a national priority, said they would run a uh, abortion rights woman and with a ticket that would knock out every Republican state House member who had voted for the Abortion Control Act because they figured all the Republicans would stay home in the primary mm-hmm. to wait and vote in the general. And nobody would run against her. So I did. I was 34. I had four children. The oldest was seven. The youngest was one. When I got my name on the ballot, the press said, well, how many votes are you going to get? And I said, well, mine and my mother's and probably my husband's. But husbands are weird creatures. You just never know. (laughs) And they said, well, aren't you just a protest candidate? And I said, yes, I absolutely am. In our system, you're allowed to protest. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're morally obligated to protest. This would be one of those times. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, this is meaningless. And I said, well, not to me. Mm-hmm. In the end, I raised and spent $45,000 in a statewide governor's race. We didn't have an office. We didn't pay any staff. I got 46% of the vote. I carried 14 counties, including hers. I saved every pro-life seat in the Pennsylvania House. I picked up two pro-life challengers against two Republicans who had voted for the Abortion Control Act. The next day, the Washington Post lead editorial said the housewife from Johnstown, which is what they called me, melted the pro-choice silver bullet. It was (laughs) hilarious. At one point on election night, I was ahead. And the press said, what will you do if you win? And my friend, who was my campaign manager, said, oh, we'll demand a recount because we weren't expecting to win. (laughs) But that race echoed across the country and people ran for office all over the country on a pro-life ticket that had been afraid to do so before. So it was definitely worth doing. Um, That led to the outcome-based education fight. Um, I had actually, at that point, I, because of the Alternative to Abortion Project, I wound up being, in my 20s, an advisor to President Reagan's Commission on the Family. And I worked on... um, issues with single moms, welfare, adoption, gave speeches in the White House. It was, President Reagan's administration was really quite astounding. It was it was such a kind administration. And they did things without photo ops. They just genuinely cared, which was yeah. really, really amazing. It was a wonderful introduction for me into what it could be in Washington. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, so this is way more than we talked about the first time. <laughs> yes. And I am so excited because one, one, because it just goes to show what one person with conviction can do. Yes. And and that's the message that everybody needs to understand and hear is that they they can make a difference. Do not let people tell you that you can't. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, it doesn't matter how big, I mean, I wound up working on a national stage, um, yeah. but my son and my daughter-in-law, um, they have three kids. And mm-hmm. this year the kids went to a private school, but they put in a mask mandate. And my son said, yeah, absolutely not. We're not doing that. So his wife quit her job mm-hmm. and they're homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And so a neighbor up the street, was also homeschooling, but getting a lot of grief from like in-laws. And the, that neighbor said, well, they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like the neighborhood house. They have the pool and the kids. And so the in-laws and had met them and went, oh, 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 they're doing it? Well, then it must be the thing to do. Okay, you're just on the cutting edge of the trend. See, every time one person steps forward, mm-hmm. you make it easier for the next person 
just stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, okay. and that's in the end how you change a culture. Yeah. So, so this is super exciting. So carry on with where you were going and everything that you were doing. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I thought it was, it's just so important. And what an example. And now I'm even, now I'm even more in awe of you, Peg. Well, you know, I, they call me the housewife from Johnstown and I kind of am. Yeah. I, 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 um, I really was just a wife and a mom that said, I'm going to do what's in front of me to do because of the governor's race then people came to me with this thing called outcome-based education. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when I first heard about it, I can remember meeting with the lady who was trying to teach it to me. And I finally looked at her and said, do you have something I can read? Cause this is a little overwhelming and I'm having trouble following all the pieces. Can, can you give me something to read? Well, she gave me a box, which was horrifying. And that's how I found the test that I talk about in who controls the children. Mm -hmm. It's called the educational quality assessment. It was given in Pennsylvania I had been given for a number of years. The lady who gave it to me found it because her son came home and said, Mom, we took this really weird test. And when he described it, she didn't believe him. Mm. And she went down to the school and said, you know, he has to be wrong. He has to be telling me the wrong thing. Um, and she was, like many of your listeners, probably the room mother. She baked the cookies, went on the field trips, helped at the parties, chaperoned the special events. And so she went, they knew her and, you know, she was in the classroom all the time. And she went down and met with this principal who sent her to the superintendent and said, my son said about this really strange test. And the superintendent's words were, we are no longer going to be friends. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. <laughs> so she filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the test. Mm -hmm. And that's how it was discovered. And it, it was a test that it, the title said citizenship. And so parents thought they were asking questions like, how long does the president serve in office? Or, you know, how many members of the are there in the Senate? The test said, we're not asking those questions. We are looking for what the test called thresholds for behavior change. Under what conditions can we make the child change the behavior? There was never an option for the child to say, I will not change my behavior. They had to say under what conditions they would change their behavior. Mm -hmm. And the test was, there was a right answer and a wrong answer. It was a criterion reference test. A criterion reference is a spelling test. You either spell the word right or you spell the word wrong. Mm -hmm. This test had a preferred answer. And it, the, the, one of the tests, there were 10 like subsections. One of them tested for the child's willingness to accept change without protest. One of them wanted you to be internally motivated, no, externally motivated instead of internally motivated. In other words, you would give in to peer pressure. You would yeah. go with the crowd. This mother uh, sued and found out that they had used a tiny little bit of federal money in the test and actually got Pennsylvania to enter into a consent agreement saying they wouldn't do the test anymore. They just changed the name. Yeah. They just kept changing the name. And so by the time I got involved, it was almost 10 years later. And now we're in outcome-based education where they were testing uh, and evaluating attitudes and opinions and beliefs. We beat them at the federal level in the 1990s. I debated this in every, literally in every state but Hawaii. It was even in Alaska. And we backed them off. <clears throat> but that didn't mean they went away. It just meant they kind of went back to the drawing board. And it resurfaced as Common Core. Mm. And what people don't realize is that the, they got much better at their rhetoric. The, the folks driving this really, really improved their rhetoric. And so it, they, instead of calling them outcomes, 
they called them standards. And what they said was, well, you know, we, we want our children to meet all these standards so they can compete on the international stage, which then the debate became, well, what standards should they be? But what people missed was when you put the standards on the children, because these weren't standards for the teachers. It wasn't saying to the teachers, you will teach multiplication in the third grade. Mm -hmm. They're saying every single child must demonstrate to the establishment, the government school's satisfaction, that they are doing what the government school wants the way that the government school wants. That moved the child from the client of the system to the product of the system. That was a seismic shift that largely went unnoticed. A client, you based, you, you design and base and everything in your system is done for the benefit of the client. Do you know when about that shift happened? Uh, in with Common Core, they started writing the standards. Actually, the uh, Council of Chief State School Officers was mm -hmm. involved. They, they actually had a patent on the Common Core standards, and their funding came from Bill Gates. Yeah. And it wasn't – when you look at funding, it's, it's important when you look at funding to not just look at how many dollars. You have to look at what percentage of the person's income does that many dollars make up. So if, if my total income is $5 and you give me $1, you're a 20% funder. I'm going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. If my total income is $10 million and you give me $100,000, well, you're 1%. Not such a big deal. So I went back and looked at how much, what percentage of the funding was the Gates Foundation providing? Well, with the Council of State School Officers, it was more than 60%. So they really weren't an organization that was doing what the states wanted. They were a, basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And then they used the Hunt Foundation out of, um, I, I think it was South Carolina, it was one of the Carolinas, to um, like market, validate, promote the standards. And, and the Hunt Foundation came up with this great big, huge thing about um, how when the all of the states were below what the NAEP said, the National Assessment of Educational Progress said was proficient and how this wasn't working. And we needed Common Core standards to fill the gap and fit the bill. And it was a huge marketing campaign. It was actually pretty well done. And I looked up the Hunt Foundation. They were bankrupt before the Gates Foundation gave them money. And so they were, I haven't looked at the numbers for what it was over about 80, well over 80% of their funding came from, so again, wholly owned subsidiary. So really what you had was the Gates Foundation and a couple of, of ancillaries funding other organizations where their name was not immediately known or necessary. And you had to really dig to get it. Like I actually went into IRS uh, tax returns mm -hmm. to find out how much money came from various of their groups and read annual reports and filed Freedom of Information Act requests yeah. to get that, the information. So it, it's not easy. They hide it, but it's mm -hmm. there. And what we found was they were funding this. And so they built the Common Core standards and, and controlled them. But in so doing, they changed the debate from who's the client, like how do the kids fit? They move from being the client to being the product. Mm -hmm. In one debate that I did in Pennsylvania, and I actually wasn't a participator, I just filmed it. The uh, 
person promoting Common Core said, well, no, we need these all to be the same. You know, like if you go to a McDonald's in one city and then you go to a McDonald's in the other city, all the hamburgers are the same. And I afterward in in other debates and conversations, I said, so does anybody on the planet think that what's done to the ground meat to create the hamburgers is done for the benefit of the ground meat? (laughs) No, you do something to a product for a client. Well, if the kids aren't the client, who is? Because the kids are now the product. Yes. You don't standardize clients. You know, we have medicine and um, doctors are told follow best practice. But can you imagine if everybody were told that your blood pressure had to meet a certain level? (laughs) I mean, that's ridiculous. (laughs) It's ridiculous. And then if we told the doctors, well, if your patients don't meet the blood pressure level, you will lose your medical license. But you can set that blood pressure level wherever you want. They would put it 350 over 230 because they'll keep their medical license. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we did in education. We said the children must meet the, quote, standard, but you can define proficient wherever you want. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, in the Algebra 1 test, I looked it up, and the proficiency level for the first section of the test was a 33%. Now, parents weren't told that it was 33%. They were told that their children were proficient. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you. If my kids came home with a 33% on a test, I wouldn't be using the word proficient. We would be using other language in my house. Right. And I'd be looking for a different teacher. <laughs> yes. And and so, but the parents weren't told that, in fact, proficient was defined at ridiculously low levels. And so it, that's why you got, for example, in Tennessee, the state reported that all of the children or 97% of the children were proficient in fourth grade reading. But when those same kids took the national assessment, of them were proficient. Mm -hmm. Wait, what happened to all the rest? Right. They just changed the definition of the word because otherwise they'd get punished. Mm -hmm. In fact, you can't mandate learning. You just can't. And, And you can't standardize children. You know, I have six. Five of them are boys. One of my sons, um, never met a number he didn't like. And when he was in college, he double majored in electrical engineering and computer engineering and minored in math. And when he got to his last semester senior year, the college said, oh, you know, we kind of messed this up. You need 23 credits to graduate, so you'll have to stay for another semester. Well, he had the presidential scholarship, and he said, so will you extend it? And they said, no. And he said, hmm, I'm taking off 23 credits. So he took 23 400 level math and engineering credits and he made the dean's list never met a number he didn't like my (laughs) daughter has a condition called dyscalculia meaning she never met a number she understood Mm -hmm. so i homeschooled her for high school she was a a professional dancer she was classical ballerina and -hmm. in order to allow that to happen because her career began at 17. We did high school in three years. We condensed it. So I homeschooled her for high school and she brought me a math problem and it was about time. How long does it take this to happen? And she brought me a negative number and I just went, Oh, that's wrong. And she said, you didn't even check it. I said, honey, it's a negative number. Yeah. Time doesn't go backwards. Well, that's how it worked out. Well, you did it wrong. Well, no, I, I no, honey, time doesn't go backwards. Mm-hmm. What can you get younger? Well, no. So time can't be a negative number. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. Yeah. Now, she always had dyscalculia. 
he always loved numbers. Mm-hmm. How do I write a math standard that's appropriate for both of them? Right. And that's two children in one family in one subject. Now multiply that times every child in every family and every subject. And that's something that I remember when we talked the first time a couple of weeks ago, and we started talking about dyslexia and dyscalculia, and you started talking to me about the math problems now being uh, more reading problems with math in them. And it's, do you remember that conversation that we Absolutely. had? Okay, can you can you walk people through that? Because I thought it was I, I obviously we didn't record it, but I really I, I thought I kept thinking about that after I got off the phone with you. And I thought that's so profound because even in my third grade third graders math, when she comes home, it's all story problems. And I always think of you now when I look at these story problems and I think, well, what about the kids who can't read like this? They don't understand. The the way that and it's especially um damaging in the state assessments because mm-hmm. in the state assessments now they don't just give them a story problem but you solve it with math what they say is here's the math problem solve it now write a paragraph explaining why you did what you did mm-hmm. well that is now not a math test that's a language test you mm-hmm. are now correcting language not math and it cuts Invalidly. Valid means I measure what I say I'm measuring Mm -hmm. accurately. So it it changes the test. Now, if you ask little girls on on average to say, why did you do what you did? They'll begin by telling you what they had for breakfast that morning. They'll tell you what they're (laughs) wearing. They'll tell you how they feel while they're writing the thing. They'll put little hearts over the eyes. If you tell a little boy, especially one who's really good at math, why did you do this? He'll write because that's the way it worked. And what he won't say, but his thinking is, you dummy. Like, what are you asking me this for? Look, there's the answer. In fact, my son that we just talked about, Mm -hmm. he was, I taught them all to read. He was the hardest one to teach to read (laughs) because numbers. So it cuts, first of all, it hurts little boys. Second, kids often have um, different levels of ability. And at the most extreme level, you have kids with dyslexia which is the inability to read, dyscalculus, math. Oftentimes, kids with one are really good at the other. So my daughter with the dyscalculus, yes, she was reading Dickens when she was 12. Mm-hmm. She loved it. And so she, and she still reads avidly and voraciously because that side was stronger because the other side was weaker. But when you make the assessment be right about what you're doing, you've now made it a reading test. So a child who's really good at math, but maybe has dyslexia is now going to fail. Mm -hmm. Except we're not putting him in reading remediation, we're gonna put him in math remediation, which that kid didn't need. And so we're, we're, we're measuring something that we weren't supposed to be measuring. We've changed the, the focus of the test. The other place where this begins to have a problem is when you look at the socioeconomic level of the children. Mm. These tests, now, um, when I was in grad school, I actually ran the psychometric testing clinic for the university. So I'm what they call a psychometrician. I, I never went and got my license, but I gave the tests. I scored the tests. I used the test to diagnose disabilities. When the special ed law, it was called 94142, was passed way back in the 70s, um, 
I was the regional trainer for the Northwest Quadrant of the state of Pennsylvania because I was in grad school and they used the universities to do the training because they didn't have anything else. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of a testing expert because I've done it so much. We always knew and actually still know that these tests should not be considered the end all and be all because you can't control what the children themselves bring to the testing situation. So I'm going to test 100 kids. Ten of them fail. For one of the ten, the reason they failed wasn't because they couldn't do math. It was because their dog died last night. Or they just found out that grandma has cancer. Or their parents are getting a divorce. Or it's the first day of a cold. You know, you wake up and you feel pretty good, but by lunch you think, can I just find the truck that hit me and lay down now? Just <laughs> yeah. declare me dead on the road right now. Um, so for the 10 that fail, in any given testing population, 10%, so it'd be one out of the 10, you're not actually measuring math. You're measuring and recording that their dog died last night. However, as the socioeconomic level of the children goes down, that interfering factor goes up. Because children who live in poverty are more likely to have family upheaval, not good rest, not good nutrition, an undiagnosed illness because there's a single parent who has to work and so you have to go to school. So you get this. And, and in, for example, the state of New York, they actually tracked the results of the test and the socioeconomic levels of the district. The correlation was 35 percent. If you're getting a correlation that big from something you're not supposed to be measuring at all, that test is not valid, which means that for every 10 kids that failed, three and a half of them, you weren't measuring math or reading. You were measuring their dog died last night. The yeah. problem is you don't know which ones those are. Which three are they? You have no idea. So you don't know what you're measuring, which is why we always said, and if you remember when we were kids, you took, depending on where in the country you lived, you either took the Iowa or the Metropolitan or the Stanford achievement test. And they told you, this doesn't count for you. It's not going to affect your grade. It's not going to affect your placement. We used it to measure the system. Because every kid in Mrs. Blunkenschmiel's third grade class couldn't be having a bad day on the same day. So if the whole class failed, we looked at Mrs. Blunkenschmiel. Mm -hmm. If the whole district failed, we looked at the district. It was a way to measure systems. Now we measure children. And we all somehow pretend that that number is magically correct. I feel like I'm looking at a Lucky Charms commercial, you know, yeah. it's magically correct. It's and, and unfortunately, then we we change the child's educational trajectory based on this one test on one day that you don't actually know what you were measuring. And then you have the well, if it's a math test, are you actually measuring math? And then you have the scoring problem with it where, you know, you have people come in and they have to score this many tests a day. And so they're looking for keywords. What's the difference between a score of one or two? Well, you're proficient or not. So it has a big difference in the child's future, but not necessarily in the in the future of the in, in the how the rubric of the person doing the, the scoring. So. It's, it's broken at pretty much every level. Mm -hmm. And then you have the controlling of the content of the test so you can make it easier or harder. So years ago in California, California made their test secret. 
nobody was allowed to see them, they would send you to jail. So I had them, and I used to do, like, town meetings saying, hey, come get me, come get me. But then I read them all in one day, which nobody does. And what I found was that the third grade tests were written at the fifth grade reading level, the fifth grade tests were written at the fifth grade reading level, and the 11th grade tests were written at the fifth grade reading level, which means the third graders wouldn't do very well. The fifth graders would give you the at least the purest, and the 11th graders, look how wonderful our program is. Exceptional, of course, yeah. Because I made the test so easy. You know, so you, you have, you can skew it that way. You can skew the scoring, like Pennsylvania, 33%. In Virginia, I actually pulled all their, they're called cut scores. What do you have to do to show that you're proficient? In no case was it more than 50. So, but the parents don't see that. Mm-hmm. They only see the word proficient and they think, little Johnny's doing great. But little Johnny's not doing great. But nobody knows that. So you can control the scoring. Then you can control the content of the questions. So in Pennsylvania, when I was fighting OBE, I um, kind of forced the Department of Education to let me see all the tests. There were 10 versions. So when parents went in to see, they got a clean version of the test, but I made them show me all 10. It's a fifth grade test. Kids are 10 years old. Story is about somebody who finds a wallet on the street. And then what did they do with the wallet and the money in it? That's the story. Mm -hmm. First question. If you, meaning the child who's taking the test, found a wallet in the street, would you keep it? And I turned the test around to the undersecretary and said, is the right answer yes or no? And how is that a reading question? Do you read better if you say yes? Or do you read better if you say no? Or did you just test a child's honesty on a test that will become part of their record behind the back of every parent in this state? Mm -hmm. They did. Mm -hmm. They tested honesty. So you can skew the test. When Common Core first started, um, I think the Washington Times gave a report about some of the testing that was used. And in one case, the, the information in the test, the kid had, a, it was a prompt. So they got a story and then they had to write about it. But it talked about how the people that were involved in, the, in 9-11, but they misidentified all the people. They said they were from one country and they were from another country. And I no longer remember what country they named, so I'm I'm not even going to say. But they misidentified the the people. But see, the the child, because they're looking for the answer, they're not not evaluating the information being presented to them. In one Common Core education, it was a 12th grade literature textbook. It was put out by um, uh, Prentice Hall, which is a fully owned subsidiary of Pearson, which is the biggest common core promoter. And it was the literature book and they were doing Chaucer. I read the whole book and I read all the questions and they're doing Chaucer. And what the question, the kid, the child was supposed to write an essay on like a moral. It was this, the story about the, the Reeve who was, was doing a moral story. And so the example was a family with a large van because they have many children. Well, that's actually selfish and immoral. But the way that they framed the example was we're showing you how not to do this as a run on sentence. We're see you divide it. So the child is looking at the run on sentence, not looking at you just said that big families are immoral. But that's what they said. Yeah. At the in the beginning of that sequence, they talked about um, the time of Chaucer and how what women were taught to read. That's true. Neither were men. There were no printing presses. There was nothing to read. So that was, did you ever see the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger? It's called True Lies. Yes. He was a spy. That's called a true lie. Mm-hmm. We tell a lie with words that are true. But no child is going to say, wait, 
Did you teach the men? No, you didn't teach anybody. That's why the knights had scribes, because it was actually considered effeminate if you could read. So the knights on purpose didn't, because they were manly men, and they did not do that. And the scribes did it. So nobody read, because there were no printing presses. There was nothing to read. So it's... But it, if you read it, it made you look like, feel like women were being discriminated against. Well, maybe they were, but that was not, that was not the, the underlying, like that wasn't the truth of what you just said. You told a lie. So th- there were, there are a number of those. The college board, when they came out with their new AP history test a couple of years ago, I actually sat down and read all of the analysis. And I was, I was really struck because they taught World War II, of course, without mentioning a man named Adolf Hitler. And I thought, you know, you guys should probably watch the History Channel because they only talk about Adolf Hitler all the time. But how do you do that? They also didn't mention the Holocaust. Never happened. But they spent a lot of time talking about how the United States put the Japanese in internment camps in the middle of the country. Now, should our children know that that happened? Of course they should. Mm -hmm. It did happen. They should know. They shouldn't know about the Holocaust. You know, we didn't gas six million anybody's. Right. And yet, not even in the curriculum, not even there. So it's 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 a very skewed presentation. And and what we forget is that children don't know what they don't know. Right. So they don't know to say, where's this part? Because mm-hmm. they don't know it's there. They're there to learn. They just learn. Yep. So, so how do, how do parents, how, how do you overcome this system? There's a couple of ways you can do it. And I say this in every audience, mm-hmm. if your kids are in the public school, pull them out tomorrow. Don't wait. Yeah. The damage is pervasive and often permanent. And so, and it's not just a damage in terms of the academic knowledge they're not getting. It's their self-esteem. It's their self-image that is being skewed. They are... Uh, I was in New York. I was doing a presentation and the lady who had invited me, her, she was nine, her nine-year-old daughter appointed herself my bodyguard, you know, and so she's following me all around and she's just like nine-year-olds do. And she said to me, Dr. Lipsick, I, I, I really hope you can win this because then I won't be dumb anymore. What, wait, what did you say? Well, then I won't be dumb anymore. What does that mean? You won't be dumb anymore. Well, you know, I just, I can't do the math. I mean, my mom's even gotten a tutor and I just, I can't do it. Now, this child had just finished telling me that her favorite book was A Wrinkle in Time, which is written at about a sixth or seventh grade reading level. And I was like, really? So who's your favorite character? And she had one and a reason. So yes, she did read it and she knew what she read because she could give me, so not dumb. And I, but I'm dumb because he, Children don't evaluate the system. They assume that whatever the system demands of them is correct. And so if I can't do it, the fault must be in me. Adults are more likely to say that's ridiculous. Stop it. But children never, ever do that. If a child believes that they're stupid before they're 10, they'll believe it for the rest of their life. And people who do not trust their own intellect do not stand up against the crowd. Because they don't trust their own judgment. So they buckle under. That damage is permanent. So if your kids are in the public school, pull them out tomorrow. Homeschooling is growing everywhere. There's an Mm -hmm. organization called the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. You can find them online. They're very cheap to join. And they give you all the legal stuff you got to do so that you don't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, 
people are doing it. I told you my son, my daughter-in-law quit her job. Mm -hmm. She's happier. And she's like, wow, I, I didn't realize how much happier my kids are now that I'm doing this because her, her oldest is eight when she's about to be nine and she wasn't challenged in school. She was very bright. She liked getting A's, but she was bored. Now she's challenged. So September was a little rough because it was like, wait, what do you mean? I'm not getting all A's. How did this happen? <laughs> but now she's like, look at me, look what I can do. It's they, they can, they can do a lot more than you think that they can. Mm -hmm. So it's good for the kids. Yes. It has financial repercussions. Pay them, pay them. It's just that easy. So if you are at all in a place where you can pull them out, pull them out. It's good for your kids. Also realize that the system is funded on average daily attendance. They're funded based on how many children are in the, in the chairs. You start pulling up kids out of the chairs, you know, money talks. They start paying yeah. attention. Yeah. If you are a retired teacher, call your church, call the uh, whatever the homeschool group is in your state and find out who's in your community and volunteer to help. Because a lot of times people are don't do it because they're afraid. Well, you know, I never, I don't think I can, especially as you get a little older mm -hmm. at the high school level, if you're a retired physics teacher, trust me, you will be busy. You won't be bored. You will be yeah. busy forever. So volunteer to help. Vol get involved. If you're a grandparent, help, help to purchase curriculum, help to design it, help to go on a field trip with your, your little, it's so much fun. And it, it, it helps to build the generations together and build the families together. So do that. Form communities. You know, people feel like they're isolated, but look at what just happened in Virginia. Yeah. Obviously, they weren't a very small minority of parents who didn't like the nonsense that was happening. There were right. enough, of them, enough of them that they turned the whole state around. That's right. So form communities, look for other people that you can connect with, that you can celebrate with, that you can um, have, have a, a mom's night or a dad's night where you can bring your kids together. If you are the pastor of a church, I'm now seeing pastors across the country that are doing what they're calling date nights at their church, where they bring in teenagers who babysit the children for nothing. Like the mm -hmm. church pays them a little bit, but the parents yeah. don't. The parents all bring potluck. And then the church will have a, a game night, a movie night, a discussion night. But the parents get time as parents, as a married couple, somebody's watching the kids and it's not super expensive for them because it's just bring a potluck. They get time with each other and they get, they meet other people that they can connect with. So you're not by yourself. So if you're having a bad day, you can call Susie up the street and say, okay, so the kids and I are about to descend upon you. I'll bring popcorn, <laughs> whatever, because we need that. Yeah. We need that community and churches are in a unique position and it's, it doesn't cost the church anything. It's not like it's a, it's an, it's open up your building. It's sitting there anyway Yeah. on a Tuesday night or whatever night you pick to have a date night, but recognize that families are very stressed out right now and couples need couple time. Mm -hmm. They need time for their marriage. If you are a married couple, plan a date with your spouse. It doesn't have to be, you go to a five-star restaurant. Um, I have friends and I mean, they've been married, you know, like me since God was a baby and they go out every Saturday morning and they have 
they go to like the local breakfast. It doesn't even cost 20 bucks. They have a little breakfast and they've been doing it forever. And one of the parent, one of their, when their kids were little, one of their parents came and spent two hours on a Saturday morning, which was fun for grandma, but it gave them time to just be a married couple to reconnect. And you need to do that. Anything you can do to strengthen your family is the most important thing you can do. Amen. Because in the end, family will always beat government. It will always trump government every single yeah. time. How can people reach you or reach out to you and learn more about you and all the work that you've done? Uh, my website is called, it's just my name. So it's online. And there's uh, a section, we're, we're in the process of revamping, but right now there's a section for adults and then there's a section for parents working with your children. And there's also a book nook, books you can read to your kids and things you can do with them. So, it, you know, we're trying to give as much practical advice as we can at the same time that we talk about the culture. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I have enjoyed our time together and I so look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. You too. Have a lovely day. Thank you for sticking around to the end. That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to visit fearlessfeatures.org to learn more about our filmmaking ministry and our new documentary film, The Mind Polluters, that will begin screening in select cities later this month. Have a wonderfully blessed day. Mark will be back with me on the show next Tuesday. So we'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.